Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very exciting guests, Mike Merrill and Marcus Estes. And we are here to talk about a lot of things, but one of them is income sharing agreements as it relates to education. Two is that Mike Merrill is the world's first publicly traded person. And so we'll get into that. But perhaps Marcus, you're the CEO of Blockchain Startup Chroma. Can you introduce yourself a little bit and how you got exposed to this idea and why it's so exciting to you? Sure. Yeah. I co-founded Chroma with Mike actually five years ago. But preceding that, Mike and I have been friends for for nearly twice that. So my exposure to Mike as a publicly traded person, I was really, you could consider kind of an alpha user of Mike as an investment. How much do you own? I've been been trading a lot actively, but yeah, my my stake, I'm one of the top, I think top five shareholders, Mike, is that that true? It's been fluctuating a little bit, I've noticed as you've been trading a lot. But yeah, I think you're up there. You're definitely in the top 10. And uh, can you talk a little about what Chroma does? We're, We're primarily help people do securities offerings backed with blockchain technology, specific, specifically crypto assets, and, and with a focus on the ERC-20 token. We're, we're currently de- delving into a niche that involves direct issuance and how to get a utility token, basically building on-ramps and off-ramps to help tell people that, that have business models that would benefit with, with U.S. dollar transactions rather than strictly relying on Ethereum and Bitcoin to, to fund those transactions. So we're kind of a blend, like, like a lot of companies we have a consultancy piece to it, which is where we can help kind of structure the, especially the securities regulation around it. And then our, our core technology platform does the, the initial sale and also again manages this low liquidity exchanges. So we kind of spin them up on a per project basis for companies that we're working with. Well, Mike, can you introduce yourself? You are the world's first publicly traded person since what, 2009? Uh, yeah, it was uh, t- uh, late 2008, so I was just hitting my, I just hit my 10-year mark of selling shares of myself, and that basically involves, uh, as well as like a live market with a fluctuating stock price, which will determine largely how I feel when I wake up in the morning. I also allow my shareholders to help guide my life decisions. So when I'm making a big choice, I'll put that up for a vote. All the shareholders will come in and vote. You know, obviously, time how many shares they have and that'll sort of help guide my life forward. And two two great things emerged out of the financial crisis. One was uh, the Bitcoin white paper in 2008, and the other was uh, was you being the first publicly traded person. <laughs> what what, uh, what gave you the idea in, in the first place? I think the very very first inkling of the idea was there was actually this arts group in I think it was 2001, kind of first dot com days called eToy and. They had this big giant wealth VC backed company called eToy, or no, I think it was eToys was the online toy retailer. And they basically tried to sue this small arts group and say, we're a company, you're not, we're going to take your domain. And this arts group was like, you know, F you very much. They incorporated, sold shares in themselves and then fought back. They're still around. The online toy retailer is gone. So I guess they won. And the, the part about that that I really loved was I love the entire thing conceptually, the, the practical elements of how they built it, but they didn't have a live marketplace. And I just felt like that was the missing piece. I was like, someone needs to do this and you have to actually be able to exit your position or what's the point? Otherwise, you're just giving money away. So that that market where people could come in and come out was sort of the missing piece that I felt like someone had to do 
And eventually, as no one stepped up to do it, I was like, well, I guess I have to do it. <laughs> so what were you hoping to achieve? Like, what did you sort of imagine the, the utopia vision of this being? My initial plan was that this would sort of guide, you know, what at the time I referred to as my nights and weekends. I had a day job and I was, you know, happily working and I did a lot of side projects, sort of various things on the web. And I thought, well, this is a great way to direct that energy and people can kind of come in, help fund, participate. And then, you know, if they're ever bored, they can just like sell their shares and get out. It quickly became apparent that what the shareholders wanted was more control over my personal life. And so I guess you could call that a pivot. I kind of followed or or was drug, I guess, by the invisible hand of the market into control of my personal life. When you first started doing this, did you envision that, you know, hundreds and thousands of people would follow your lead or, or what was the sort of you took, like, what's the best case scenario? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I've always said, I mean, I think, I, I believe technically I'm still the only publicly traded person, but I do like to say that I'm the world's first because it, it, I mean, right away it just felt like, well, this is an idea that just should be copied and implemented over and over and over again. You know, the, eventually we should have funds of people that we're invested in. And so I, I've been surprised that there hasn't been, I've, I've seen some people experimenting with it in different ways. There hasn't been the explosion that I was definitely first expecting when I, when I started out. And and why should it exist? Like that's what's the utopia? What's what's the what's the dream here? What? Well, man, I'm not even sure it is a utopian. <laughs> it might be dystopian, but it sure seems like any time that you can see something that has future value, I think that the you know it makes sense to sort of create a market around it and try to get in there on the ground floor. So uh, we've seen that with you know as we get into talking about some of the income share agreements. I mean, anything around you know, a kid going to college, you know, you're going to want to like, if you help pay for that kid's college, then maybe you get a share of their income later on. That's, again, I think there's a there's a dystopian element to that as well. But it's, it's a better alternative than going into massive amounts of debt. Yeah. And let's segue into income share agreements. Um, and there are, you know, play, schools like uh, Lambda School and Make School and many others that have proselytized this idea of, hey, instead of going to school and taking a ton of debt where, where the school isn't necessarily long-term aligned with your, with your education, perhaps you can go for free and pay back, you know, percentage of your future revenues or at a certain income level. So, you know, there's, you only pay back in an upside case and you won't, uh, won't have debt and we're being crippled by, by, by student debt. Is that a, a fair assessment of income share agreements in edu- education or what the promises or anything you guys would add or edit to that? A lot, a lot of focus has been paid historically on funding college, but I think there's a lot of other potential applications as well. For instance, in sports markets, in general, when you think about someone's future earnings, it can be applied to all, all sort of age levels and, and professions, uh, theoretically. But it's, I think it's interesting in particular to look at it versus student loans and, um, and the education market. Once you have this idea that there's an amount of money coming in based off the labor of you know this individual person... I think that gets really interesting because I think there's different ways that you can divide that up or, you know, like a, a really rich and developed market around ISAs could get really complicated and fun as well. You could start shorting, you could, you know, you could start doing some kind of, you know, like I said, derivatives or funds or anything like that. Like I think it starts, it starts to become, you know, regional investments or, you know, do you, yeah, do you look at like, what you start going to going to start look at the earning potential only of certain people, but then maybe, maybe there's huge upside in funding some kid going into the arts, you know, like, it, yeah, 
I don't know. I, I think it gets really weird. Yeah, it's interesting. That would be a head bust out of the art school kids. <laughs> <laughs> you would long or short? It depend, depends on the, the kids. It depends on the school. But unfortunately, look to seeking revenue streams inside the art. So it's a pretty, pretty tricky bet. <laughs> yeah, it depends what they're, what they're, what they're priced at. But I think the, um, you know, it's interesting because the, the idea of, you know, education, especially for kids who can't afford it or, or crippled by debt is, is kind of straightforward. I sort of depart a little bit when you get to derivatives or when you talk about long or short, shorting, because, you know, then you're going to want to influence <laughs> you know, the outcome, which could have all sorts of negative effects. Mike, have, have people, do you have derivatives on you? Can people short along you? <laughs> no, I've been trying to implement it for a while. I have a pretty, most of my shareholders come at it with a pretty, they're pretty naive when it comes to investing. I, I, there's been a handful of people where I'm, I'm the only thing they're invested in, which it's not good for them because um, I consider myself pretty high risk. But I think I think it's a very simple system in that there's there's one stock on the market, you know, and it's a very manual trading system, and everything is at a very very basic level. So I I would love to add shorts though because then anyone that sort of hates the idea, I could just be like, well, go ahead and short the stock, and you know, yeah. you might as well profit from my downfall. I mean, I, again, conceptually, I love that idea. I would yeah. hope to prove them wrong. Why hasn't anyone made a reality show about you? Um, yeah, it's funny. I was actually talking to someone about that. I, I, I live in Los Angeles now, so I feel like that's a, you, you sort of have to talk about that when you're in Los Angeles, but it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something about this idea that's so hilarious. Why is it so? I mean, and I, you know, I've been reading sort of the, you know, investor community you put together. It seems that like there's a lot of, a lot of humor in it. Why is it so funny? I think it pokes fun as much as it's serious. I think it pokes fun at the, you know, kind of this idea that we're going to measure everything by its dollar amount, which, you know, no individual person, unless they were, would really say like, oh, everything is about how much money I make or it's worth, or, you know, that's not my measuring stick for life. But then as a society, that is our measuring stick. And so it's just this way of like grabbing that and saying like, okay, what if I actually value the input of, you know, my friends, my family, total strangers, based on how much money they put in this, in this market? Uh, and it turns out it's, I would argue it's not that different than just, you know, what most people do, which is they just weight it by how much time somebody puts into their life. Mike, do you see yourself as a satirist? I don't. I mean, I, I feel like I've been doing this long enough now where I don't find it. I, you know, I, I just, I think of the shareholders all the time now. I, I think there's a lot of people that participate kind of under that assumption that I'm out to sort of make fun of capitalism but or, or make a bigger I, point, or make a bigger, know, bigger point or something because they're, yeah. they're serious about it yeah yeah i don't know i i think it's a it's an experiment in another way of measuring influence and the for me it's it's less about that stock price as much as that can affect my mood it's more about having this group of people invested in helping me make good decisions and that part's been really i mean it's been very real like i've, I've relied on those shareholders in ways that I never thought I would when I started this project, like kind of emotional ways. Say more about that. Like what has surprised you about, about having investors, about having shareholders, about, about this process that you've now, that you're now a decade in? Yeah. One of the big questions was I had this stable job that I loved for years. And when Marcus and I were considering starting Chroma and I put that up for shareholder vote and I was incredibly nervous about it, you know, starting a, a, a new venture versus this very stable thing that I had. And, you know, I expected it to be pretty contentious. And, you know, some people are going to be like, you know, take this slow and steady route. Some people are going to be like, no, shoot for the moon, see what happens. And it was like, 
I think one, maybe two people voted against that. And it was just overwhelming support. And I mean, that felt great. That felt like this thing that I was pretty sure I wanted to do to have the backing of all of those people. Just it. Yeah, it emboldened me. It was really amazing. So what is the pitch for like, for, let's say, you know, I'm curious about this. I would, I would like to have people who have stake in me. Uh, wh- why should I do this? What are the pros? What are the cons? Is it because collective decision making is better than than my own? Or I think it's really easy to go. You can go out and you can pull your friends and you can say, "Hey, should I do this this new idea?" And you're definitely going to be biased, and you're going to hear the yeses. You know, if you're if you're leaning that way more than you're going to hear the noes. In this way, I have a very very objective measure of what the people around me are saying. And again, mine is weighted towards who's put more money in, but I would argue that those are the people that tend to clearly indicate how much they care by how much money they've put in. So again, going back to money as an ultimate, you know, sort of like the base level way that we measure anything in our society. Yeah. I mean, if you have more money, you're just smarter, clearly. (laughs) And I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but if you're, you know, if money is is time, like go go out and instead of spending time with me for your influence, go out and earn money and then just put some of that money into making a decision with me. We don't have to go get a copy. You can just cast a vote on the website and have the same level of influence if we've gone out and got beers. Do you screen your investors at all? Like, is there a smart money, dumb money? All no, not at all. Um, I think there's definitely a mix on on there. I have I have booted one person. I had a I had somebody come in who has definitely made me uncomfortable. And so there's there's only in the history in the ten year history there's only been one person where I've said no, you don't get to play. Marcus, what's it been like to be an investor in Mike? How how has that changed your friendship? You know, if I wanted to invest in Mike, what would you tell me about what the experience has been like and what to expect? Very, it's an interesting vantage to to have been involved with this project and with Mike as a friend for such a long period of time, because in, in its very earliest stages, I would kind of counter Mike's assertion that he doesn't see himself as a satirist, because I think that a lot of the early, you know, what do you do if, if, if a friend comes to you with this idea, the first few thoughts are, you know, what, like, what are you going to do? What you're, you're you know, it's, it's, it's still hard to explain. But when, when the, when the community was young, it was very much Mike's actual, very closest friends kind of humoring him in a way, a, a, engaging with it as social critique. I don't think everyone was really looking for the huge upside in this. Mike has always had a very provocative and interesting way of explaining it in his motivation. So I think, I think it began as the way that you might support a friend's art project. And then, you know, beyond that, the the next level of engagement became a little bit dealing with the sort of potential implications of this thing as we're all seeing how how far is Mike willing to take this? You know, we voted on whether Mike should get a vasectomy, for instance, and that was, of course, fascinating. It was a narrow miss, right? We, Mike almost gave up on his ability to sire young on the basis of a of, of a market vote. And then, of course, the the later stage here, which is that Mike has been more broadly discovered by the Internet. And and now it's not merely a a gathering of close friends, but just sort of a a, a larger marketplace of ideas. And, you know, I, I guess I could say from one perspective in terms of how Mike has performed as an investment, you know, in theory, Mike has done well for himself, both with his project and just in life. And so we've all benefited by that a bit and we're and we continue to root for him. Did you ever imagine, Marcus or Mike, that there would be like a platform for other people to to do this as well? And and do you think that's what's going to happen in the future? Like that that Mike is sort of paving the way for something that will 
that will exist. Well, so what one thing here that bears mentioning is that threaded throughout this entire idea is something that might and Mike faces this a lot. It's a, it's a whole lot of of deep baked in skepticism and and antagonism, and 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 again, I think there. The, my, my, I don't think Mike sees it as satire in the sense of it, of it being re- reduced to a joke. I think he's very serious about it. But he, I think uncovering the source of the antagonism towards the idea, pe- basically there's, there's, there's just this, this notion of, of quantifying emotions, layering finance over human relationships, you know, ma- you know enslaving a man, you know. The, these questions emerge really naturally as as you get into like the second layer of questioning around this stuff. So I, I would say that this idea's propensity to spread into other arenas, and potentially when we get into ISAs, you know, looking at actual financial remuneration. Mike, Mike is a good prototype in the kinds of resistances that that people face. And and so I mean I personally do think that we'll we will see this is a prototype and I do think society will continue to experiment. I think it's a little interesting how long it's taken for it to actually be experimented with at scale. I mean, there, we can point to a couple of almost like social experiments in the way of broad uh, of ISAs. There, there's, you know, Milton Friedman and the group was inspired by his, his uh, proposal at Yale in the seventies. They tried something like this, but, but time and time again, it, it hasn't quite caught a spark and become a broad cultural thing. And I think it's interesting to examine why. My, my understanding is from, from organizations like Upstart and PAVE and others that have tried was just that there wasn't enough supply side in that there wasn't that, you know, not that many people can be investors and, and, you know, you need to be a credit investor. And if you're a credit investor, you're probably a sophisticated investor. And if you're a sophisticated investor, you're probably going to want, you know, governance rights. And then we're talking about slavery. <laughs> and <laughs> now that the jobs act has happened and, and crowdfunding is emerging and things like ICOs as well, you could envision a world where the, the supply side could, could be much greater and people who aren't going to, you know, that most people will not be sophisticated investors. And I say it in a positive sense, you know, not institutional investors, not need, you know, governance rights or things that typically come with equity based investments in, in companies. I think now is a time that this idea could come back in vogue and you, you could see, start to see a lot more, more experiments. You know, again, I agree with you there that the, the question of, is marketing of a financial product. And so when you look at an investment directly into a, a human being and their potential sort of return over time. I think on one hand, you know, it, it, less less sophisticated investors, crowdfunding investors, you know, again, they, they like to invest in what they know that, you know, people have been excited around on one hand sort of consumer products and then on the other, you know, very buzzy consumer friendly kind of tech startups have been have been a, a dominant category. One, one thing that I would point out here is that we haven't seen a whole lot of a whole lot of income based things really succeed broadly. The nature of People kind of like a, the, the potential, you know, 100x economics that are, that are the, the myth of startup investing. And so I would say that on one hand, getting people excited about this, you know, I, th- I think people could, could be persuaded to, to want to invest in a person. But then the way that the returns are structured, it's, it's actually kind of, you know, it would suit into, it was slot into a portfolio in kind of a more measured or boring sense. And so we have to think about how to market the, the returns. But I, I think it's feasible. I, if we were going to sit here and take bets right now, will this pop off? And so will one of these startups, you know, why a combinator group figure it out? I think eventually they will. I'm not sure if it'll happen today or tomorrow, but I think over time, crowdfunding and, and ISAs will have a moment in the sun. And Mark, you've had the chance to see MicroExperiment up close and to sort of think about different potential applications for, for ISAs. And, and you, you know, starting five years ago, you started Chrome. How did you sort of think about, like, evaluate the landscape of potential applications where this can make the most sense 
and then settle on the direction you've chosen? Well, so, you know, interestingly enough, the most obvious thing for, you know, if if you take the the mic experiment and then add to it, you know, which is really what Crema was in its early stages, add to it um, crowdfunding regulations, it it would have been kind of obvious for us to just try to productize, you know, mic, you know, essentially let, let others IPO themselves. But I think, I think honestly, from our perspective, I would love to look at a parallel reality where we did just hard charge at that idea. But I, I think it was too, too early in the crowdfunding space that we've learned a lot about crowdfunding. And I, I think that we're going to need to see a generational, you know, investor education movement. I actually think that crypto has done a lot to re- rise the tides of people being able to make direct investments and think about them and get excited about them. So 2013 may not have been the best time to do that. It, it's possible that basically the, the entire class of millennial investors is maturing to the point, which, which makes it more feasible. But, but I, I see it as, a, as an idea that's got enough. It, it, there's just a heavy risk quotient. Someone has to go all in on it, believe on it, believe in it strongly. And I think, I think, just personally speaking, that'll that'll be an opportunity for some other group. Although I'm fa- I'm still fascinated by it. I'd love to see it succeed as long as it's structured in the right way. And some other group because it's it's sort of just too risky right now. And by the time it, you think it's like years out. I, I think I think a group that that has popular success doing this is going to have to wade into a whole lot of again ideological objection to it. And, and then, of course, it's just generating, as you said, the supply of capital in, into an idea like this. It's just, you know, it's going to be a difficult journey, just just communicating the idea. It, the idea, of course, has a lot of fascination that will be easy to get press. I think it'll actually be pretty hard to, to turn, turn this into a long-term profitable business. Not to say it can't happen. I just think, yeah, for my own risk profile, it's just not the not the strategic move for, for Chroma right now. Yeah, anytime I've thought about how I would pay dividends to my shareholders or, or, or something like that, something along the lines of an ISA, it, it's always the, it gets bogged down so quickly in the mechanics of how it would work. Like, how do you structure it? How do you audit it? How transparent do I have to be about my personal finances? And when you think about that stuff, then operating at scale, the trust gets really hard. You know, do I have to expose everything like via some kind of, you know, banking API and like get expose like how I'm spending all my money and all, you know, like it, it, it's a level of transparency that is not just conceptually difficult, but very practically difficult to, to, to build on. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of hurdles in that way, just from a sort of cultural standpoint. Yeah. yeah and we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, how are you doing this legally, Mike? Uh, well, you know, I, I am, I am not actually selling shares in myself. There is no, I'm using the model of a stock market in order to create a decision-making engine. So you can think of it just like you would playing World of Warcraft, basically. So you can buy these, uh, if you thought of the shares as like, you know, digital gold or whatever, and then you can use those to vote on my life. So that that's kind of my, I'm not a lawyer workaround, is that it's not illegal because it's not a real stock. Could that work at scale or no? <laughs> like, it's just like a video game? <laughs> uh, no, well, and, and that's something where like, when, you know, when other people have come and been like, hey, I want to do this, can I just like, you know, copy the source code or whatever. And I'm like, you know, I think it's one thing for me to do it on my own individually with like, you know, again, when I started, mostly people I know, it's another thing to facilitate how other people are going to do it or or start spreading the idea technologically without some kind of better understanding of the sort of regulatory landscape. So yeah, what needs to ch- change on the regulatory landscape? So one is that we need to, you know, there needs to be more supply side investment. Two is that we need to be able for people to create LLCs or like what, what, what are the other legal barriers? 
Well, just the idea that a security is in is this like scary thing. I think that culturally we're well past that point. Everyone is surprised the first time they realize that like, wait, you have to be an accredited investor to do that. Like the first time people sort of encounter that barrier, I feel like they're so shocked. They're like, that doesn't seem right. That's strange. And you're like, oh, well, that was a reaction to something that happened that was very bad and has never been no need to update it. And so you have this sort of barrier to entry that just sort of exists. Something like that, like the fact that all of the regulation around this is for things that happen at such massive, massive scale, it's ridiculous to think that that same amount of regulation should happen at the, you know, the the person scale as opposed to the giant publicly traded company scale. But yet there's not enough, it's not a big enough push for anyone to sort of pass new regulation yet. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys saw a couple months ago, there was this New Yorker profile about a YouTuber who broadcast everything about his life and had certain people <laughs> comment on it. And you know, they didn't like his girlfriend. They told him to leave his girlfriend, but he didn't want to leave his girlfriend. But none of them, as far as I know, had any investment or any skin in the game. So as far as I'm concerned, they're all frauds and uh, charlatans. But he has to treat them as if they do, I, I, because I if at I'm any point he doesn't do what they say, his 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 finances drop, right? Yeah. Like he is he is wholly financially reliant on them, and yet they have no incentive except to be entertained. If he was actually selling shares, they'd be way more like, you know, and there was a potential return as opposed to just paying entertainment dollars, they would steer him in a wildly different direction. Yeah. So they just he just has the wrong business model. Or the right one, he can make more money than I have on it. <laughs> Right, right. And so in terms of cultural acceptance, and, and actually maybe zooming out for a little bit, I want to give due justice to the dystopic, you know, we've been sort of talking about it in jest because it's sort of a funny idea. And, and you know, the utopian elements are, hey, if if more people have economic, you know, alignment with each other, maybe they'll care more about each other and want to see, you know, help each other out. The, the dystopic, you know, it, it harkens back to slavery you know, owning a person. What what are other more insidious dystopic uh, elements that we should give proper proper due to if uh, if we're talking about you know making this at scale? I, I think that's hard because like you know any person's utopia is another person's dystopia. So you, you know any any scenario that we come up with that is either good or bad is it's it's just basically like how many people are you helping versus how many are you hurting. And I'm as much as I'm a you know defender of capitalism i'm also like i've always been like it the market does need to be well regulated for those things because the market in and of itself is only about making money so you need regulation to come in and be like yeah but what about you know just being a good human and not and not destroying everything because i think that's sort of where things would naturally go without regulation so what would ideal governance look like i'll pass that one on to marcus Well, we're talking about here uh, regulatory oversight, or you're saying governance within an individual market. I think either both. Like, if if, you know, so one, yeah, your thoughts on what ideal regulatory, if anything, beyond what you said earlier, and then is is there going to be a situation where Mike wants to do something, but his shareholders want him to do something else, and he has to go along with what they want to do? Like, how should governance work if we're talking about creating a platform for this at scale? Well, so so Mike's decision to allow actual decision granular decision making capabilities kind of passed down to investors i i I think that there are very few 
freaks on the planet willing to, <laughs> willing to, to, to follow along to that, to that level of commitment that Mike, that Mike is. I, I think most likely if we talk about broadening the experiment, we're, we're talking about, you know, essentially in, income sharing as being the primary interface right, rather than, you know, should I date girl X or girl Y? Of course, that, that the latter is really interesting to talk about. It also gets a lot more dystopian in its implications. But but looking at the looking at just for instance, I mean, drilling as it's a broad topic, drilling down to potentially seeing them as as an as a variance of student loans, and I I, I think that it's imp- what one thing that I'd really like to hear in in general, you know, as a cultural dialogue around this is in light of what it, we're broadly acknowledged to be inside of a student loan bubble currently, you know, the federally backed student loans have done a lot of negative things on a macroeconomic scale. Tuitions, in my opinion, have risen at the rate that they have, which is just, you know, it, it's, it's monstrous. It, the way that, the, way that the, 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 the debt burden being passed on to millennial college goers ha- has, in my, in my eyes, a direct relationship to the way that we issue loans. And, and b- because, of course, from a university perspective, if your customers are certain, are immediately economically empowered to pay whatever tuition because, because of the, the loans are, are guaranteed, they've just been able to raise prices, right? So, you know, from, from a moral perspective, if we can figure out, A, diagnosing the current issue, which is just we've saddled a generation of college goers with this un- unfathomable level of debt, looking at, at, you know, basically kind of free market experimentation, if we let individual investors or, or for that matter, institutional investors, pure private market solutions, you know, one, how, are, are they still, you know, interacting with, with federal guarantees? Why or why not? Two, what does this do to the rest of the conditions that create the bubble? Three, how do universities participate in this as well? Do, are they actually co-investing? It seems like a good idea in many ways. All, all of those questions are really interesting, I think. The idea of an activist investor investing in a bunch of people going to college and then also like on the activism side, really pushing to bring down the cost of going to college because that helps his bottom line or her bottom line as an investor, which is really interesting as opposed to the other way where all of the profit goes into the loan, you know, and, and that market. The, the misalignment of incentives to me, the thing that really sticks out is that one is granted their their loan and then it, and then you give a, a very young person the ability to 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 kind of pursue the education track of their choosing and thus we have massive amounts of money being borrowed for liberal arts educations and again I'm a you know liberal arts minded person to the extreme but I also have a lot of friends that spent you know forty or sixty thousand dollars a year to go to go to art school and and it, there the it, a more direct a more directly aligned group of investors might have helped teach those those kids. Hey, actually, I see this as risky. You know, pursuing studio art with that kind of debt burden is going to make it really hard for you to live a life after. And thus, the source of capital for some, certain education tracks would be less, and that would help influence some of the decision making. Right now, it's kind of a blank check system, and it 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 seems to be inefficiently allocated in so many ways. Yeah, we we tend to sort of have this like forced bundle where it's like. The only way you can learn be a liberal arts minded person is if you get quarter million dollars into debt. <laughs> so, you know, if you just encourage people to go, you know, gain professional skills that will take away from their, you know, liberal arts as you know, opposed to saying, well, there are other ways to, you know, you can read a lot of books or you can have uh, conversations or other ways to get that type of education that don't have to be that costly. It, it's true. I mean, the thing is, is that there, there's no way to speculate through this without seeing that society is really in a bind. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I personally would 
would cherish a society that had a, a heavy emphasis on education and history and English philosophy. I think that all that stuff is really great. But the, the problem is at, at the moment that the, the burden of the, the number of those, of those graduates that have a difficult time later contributing to the economy or, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrendous. And so the thing is, is that on one hand, supporting this, this realigning of incentives to make it a little easier to have the market help you figure out what kinds of things might produce income. In every case there, you, one ends up sounding as, as, as basically kind of an, an enemy to the traditional liberal arts systems. And, and I, I, again, that's just, it's not, that's not me individually. I just see sort of like an inherent paradox in society that wants to value these things and yet hasn't found a way to actually remunerate the, the participants. And, and so the suffering comes much later, essentially, after graduation, later in life. We're trying to figure out an answer to this problem. The, the funding mechanism is not is not the only thing. There's a lot that has to be reconsidered. Yeah, I, I'm interested in this idea of almost like Kickstarter for college education. It's something that, you know, people can support other people's college education. There's sort of two things, yeah, wrinkles with it. One is that College education in some circles and certainly intellectual circles is falling, you know, less and less in favor with things like, you know, Teal Fellowship and things debt, like you say. And, and two, sort of the adverse selection portion where if you, you know, came from a great household and have, you see yourself to have great potential returns ahead of you, you're probably not going to do this. And if it's in a, you know, you might get all the people who won't hit the, bar, it might not be financially remunerative for people or, or institutions to make these loans because you might get adversely selected, the ones that are going to going to do going to do well. How, how would you respond to either of those concerns? I, I agree with you. I, I think that adverse selection is a problem at the at the outset of any kind of new market structure in crowdfunding, for instance. I mean, that's been the criticism of some of the early crowdfunded tech startups is, you know, you're only looking at the ones that couldn't get funding through other means. And so given that we don't actually have a, like a funding supply problem, there's plenty of, of credit coursing through the system. We're just trying to improve upon its shape. Then, yeah, there's a there's kind of a chicken and egg problem that I think would would lead to adverse selection. Absolutely. It, it would also kind of tend, tend for, for, for me, it's a, it may not be best to experiment with this at scale, right, looking at the education market, because that's that's really complex. But there are probably other opportunities to look for inefficiencies where the, where there's a much bigger capital problem. And I mean, there I might look at people that are looking for career switches, right? So, you know, and, and not necessarily funding for school, but there, there are a lot of people that could become, you know, basically, for instance, like taking a year off and, and, and teaching yourself computer science. There, there might be a, a good opportunity. And that's kind of, I know a lot of these code schools have taken a sort of similar model. Not having to leash it to the actual institutional education process. I mean, I'm a big fan of self-education. Uh, this could also play out in the arts as well. It's a higher risk thing, but some, there's a lot of friends I know that can produce so much economic value if they just had a little bit of time, frankly, to focus on their thing. I've got a bunch of friends that if I could give them a year off to make a video game or, or you know, make an album, it's very kind of low risk low, or high risk, low return scenario, but I'd be interested in, in looking at some of that rather than just paying for people's college education. It's interesting. There is sort of a, a rise in sort of people just giving grants, right? Right now, like grant fellowships. You could imagine a, a site that's like, is either like pursue my dreams or something. And it, you know, you sort of back people to help them pursue their dreams and maybe, maybe you get a return on it. And if you don't, you've sort of donated to someone's dream. How, you know, so maybe you just sort of see it as a write off. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of uh, education that would have to happen on the investor side as well when you're in and around startups, this idea that you're going to fund, you know, a group of people with an idea and there's going to be, you know, a thousand different pivots as they try to find exact product market fit. When you have somebody that you're funding for there for them to go to school 
and then maybe they change their major or drop out or take a year abroad or you know or or whatever i think i think similarly that's where the thing of like you know the kind of quote-unquote accredited investor or experienced investor needs to come in and sort of lay the groundwork of what the expectations are because i think there's a lot of value in things that are not the i just achieved step one step two step three step four now i'm done and so how do you allow for there to be the flexibility and like a full rich life that is not quite so regimented right you don't want to prematurely optimize i wonder why kickstarter themselves ha- hasn't waded into to some of this any any idea they seem like they have what they do down so well that they it doesn't feel like they've done a ton of experimenting i mean i know they started with the drip or whatever it's called the sort of patreon model but it doesn't seem like they do a lot of experimenting with kind of what it is that they do yeah. I, I i think kickstarter has a really clear vision statement and i, I don't i don't think it will ever include remuneration I, and, I, and i think they're correct to assume that when you're when you're backing things in a in a in a more kind of folksy community-minded i just want this to exist or maybe i want the thing when it's done i think it is a completely different mindset than than investment and i and i think i kind of i respect how they didn't attempt to leap that that chasm because it's a it's a broader chasm than i think people expect from product-based or community-based crowdfunding into you know crowdfunding investments uh, i was gonna say early on in kickstarter with a bunch of friends i think this is maybe before i was publicly traded we actually put together a thousand dollar scholarship fund that then we got to award to people that applied for it i think that was or is now at least against their terms of service but was a pretty fun experiment where we just said here's a thousand bucks for college write this blog for a year while you're in school and of course it was quickly abandoned but you know i like to think we helped a little bit yeah a lot of people are doing things like that now tyler Cowan just released a fellowship you know uh pioneers this you know new fellowship like there's a lot of a lot more grants and that can, that can unlock a lot of people taking more risks <laughs> more dynamic economy i think it's if, if you guys were doing this in, in education so would you do it separate from college and do it more around like boot camps or alternative education structures and if so why the only reason i say why is because you know as, as much as some people are saying you know clamoring for people not to go to college there's still so much identity and pride around almost like ir- irrational where you can see a lot of institutions donating or, or, or and a lot of a lot of you know the dream for so many people is to, is to go to college it's funny i'm i'm actually in you know in a traditional startup founder fashion i'm i am not only a college dropout, I was a high school dropout. And so I've got I've got a bias in in a sense. I I see school is school provides, you know, structured time to to enhance one's capabilities and thus in, in theory enhance their income earning ability. I, I think unstructured time is is such a, ra- a rare, precious modern resource. Even especially the more successful you become, the less access you have to, to unstructured time. I, I think that giving people ability to pursue self-directed outcomes i think i think probably would produce a lot of interesting interesting results the you know these are things that are given at our high level of macarthur genius grants and and i'm I'm always very interested what people do when they have time to just set themselves to it to a task without a whole lot of external influence yeah i agree i think and going back to what mark has said about the amount of funding available already um even even with all its flaws for for people going into college I think it's it's way more interesting and way more of an opportunity to look at things that people aren't currently being well funded 
for that could result in some kind of, you know, return. Do you think that there's a bigger opportunity for this, like, globally than there is in the U.S.? I'll chime in there. That's, uh, I think, a really, really interesting question as well. I think the U.S. does a really good job of encouraging entrepreneurship culturally. And I think that in countries, like, let's look at Japan, for instance. I think I think the cultural barrier towards uh, entrepreneurship and innovation is is higher, right? Because the, the idea of, you know, the disgrace of failure is something that's very socially mediated. And there, if you had someone that basically was trying to promote a not just the, the cash, but also just the cultural participation of, you know, for instance, take a year after school, you know, give a startup a shot, try to build something, going into places where, where the culture doesn't encourage that, and then trying to get that going might might help you sort of find alpha, if that makes sense. That's my hunch. I almost wonder if there's a platform, or this, this might be too niche, which basically like, it al- it's a platform that allows you to do your own fellowship or scholarship program, similar to what you just did with the $1,000 grant, like maybe anyone you know, put a thousand dollars and have your own scholarship and have people apply to it. I love that idea. You know, I, I think our, our unemployment system actually is a really good quiet financier of these kinds of things. Actually, Chroma might. So again, the, the, my current startup was in a sense financed by a six month period of, of unemployment that, that I enjoyed after a previous group I was working with declared bankruptcy. And I, I don't know that I would have been able to get this startup off the ground if not for that that period of just focused, you know, I had a little bit of bedrock of support. And um, I, I think it, do, it does more than people would imagine, especially knowing that, you know, like, this is your chance. It's very focused. You have precisely this amount of time and money if you're going to do something with that. I bet there I bet there are a certain category of people that could could make something from from nothing if we broaden that opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting. It, and that's another problem with the student loans that your governments provide loans and governments are the most sort of irrational. Like they could just keep losing money. And so it's hard to compete with them if you're trying to offer like a superior financial product to institu- institutions or something. Transitioning out a little bit, how does like crypto change this at all? Like Mikey, if you were going public two years from now, just because, you know, things aren't necessarily ready yet, but a few years from now, like what would be different? I think the, the general idea in, in sort of you know, quote unquote, alternative investments. Well, it is, is changing. And I think a big part of that is crypto. People are looking at things and, and the way that people are attaching, you know, uh, crypto tokens to investing in other things, whether it's, you know, cars or people or, you know, side of beef or whatever it is. And so I think it's opening up the idea of fractionalized ownership and an investment, all these alternative investments in, into a lot of different places. So I think. If I was starting this in like two years, I think it would appear a lot less strange and a little bit just more like, oh, huh, that's interesting. That'd be one change. The other is, you know, assuming that everything is harder for the end user with when when you start getting into crypto, like onboarding anyone onto any platform is a huge pain. And so assume if we just like magically wave a wand and assume that's resolved, I would love to not run my own market. I mean, that's a huge pain. You know, like having to resolve small technical issues, having to build it in the first place, all those kind of things. Having all that just like run in the background would be fantastic. So that would also make things a lot easier and allow it to scale, I assume. So there's a lot of like inertia heading towards in, in that direction where I think in a couple of years, if this thing takes off, I don't know how it would. It, it, it would definitely and will definitely happen in and around the crypto space somewhere. Marcus, how would you add to that in terms of, and maybe in terms of if you started, you know, the Chroma Fund, you know, sort of the initial vision of like, 
IPOing you know games and movies and and things like that. How might that be different, or or do you already see that happening in, di- in different ways, or what are your thoughts there? I think Mike's observations are are true in one on, in one way. This is the way that I view, I view crypto essentially is that you when, when when marketing a product, you have to make a very very important lane choice in in, in, in the space. If you if you're trying to ship crypto backed infrastructure to the general public, then then the onboarding ramp of having to deal with private keys, seed phrases, wallets means that your onboarding funnel is going to be a lot more narrow than it than than it would be normally. But, and this is a big but, if you're marketing to the smaller but very enthusiastic community that has that is growing around this this infrastructure. So for instance, if you presume your your user base has a wallet, then then really there's there's actually increasingly less friction involved with getting these products to market than over time. And there, if you can presume that someone has a wallet, the like just looking at the Ethereum community, which we're which we're pretty involved with right now, the Ethereum stack is has basically assuming that your users are willing to deal with it, right? It has lowered the cost of of infrastructure for for pulling a mic for for taking a thing or a person public. It's 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 essentially a you know the ERC twenty feature set and an exchange functionality, both of which you can find with on GitHub. You know you can have teenagers could do this over a weekend in a way that was you know for Mike he was it's it's you know it's Ruby on Rails and AWS and 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 you know a lot more design has to go into it. So I, I basically I'm saying. I'm optimistic that crypto does change the economic equation for trying to replicate what Mike has done. And I, I think I think if, if it does happen uh, at broader scale, it will absolutely happen from within the current crypto community and broaden out from there. What's your sort of both of your like request for products in the space for people, you know, technologists, you know, lawyers, like people who have all the skills who are really keen on, on experimenting in the space and just sort of looking to see like where to build a wedge or entry point or or where, where they should experiment, what would you advise them? I think that from, from my perspective here, this, this might be a kind of a, 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 a slightly practical or boring answer, but I think that if, if we're looking in general, crypto assets have, have become, you know, in, in, in theory, a new asset category, a new asset type. They're highly focused on volatility. So in general, in general it's, it's in order to broaden it out, it's in, interestingly enough, when it comes to income sharing or when it comes to the formation of financial products that, that we want to see grow outside of these small communities on Reddit, et cetera, I actually just want to see more interaction with, weirdly, the U.S. dollar and national currencies. I think that stuff will help. It'll help when you can not have to include the strangeness of Bitcoin prices into your financial product pitch, if that makes sense. So so basically, seeing things veer using crypto rails and crypto technology and those those patterns and that tribal, the, the benefit of that tribal thinking, but then, but then broadening it into financial products that are more well established. So it's actually kind of taking the best practices of, of, of Wall Street and traditional product packaging and trying to, to broaden scale that way. That's, that's broadly speaking, that's my answer. And then of course, once that's accomplished, I just want to see more and smaller things get funded through that mechanism. And that's, that's generally been what's exciting to us in the space is that, you you take these lessons and you go down the the long tail and see now that we've got this this funding mechanism what else might be funded now that currently couldn't be and you add liquidity to things that currently can't afford liquidity what can we get done now and looking over at the landscape with those lenses is really interesting and are there th- other things that are top of mind for you just on the last point in terms of things that should be funded or could be funded that are not funded now 
Absolutely. For me, for me, it's it's a very clear answer. It, it it's it's what what it was broadly termed impact investing or local assets. There there it's it's hard to get involved in you know for for average people to invest locally. There's just not there aren't good you know pathways towards this. But if it if it becomes trivial to invest in the coffee shop where you have you know your your coffee every morning, you know a lot about that coffee shop. And if we if we can lower the aggregate costs of broadening an investment portfolio away from the one of 5,000 publicly traded companies, but just looking at the cash streams that are coursing through our neighborhoods and the things that we care about, making more things investable and lowering the barrier towards doing that would would overhaul the economy. And I think it would contribute greatly to the GDP. It make it make it a more sound economy if if we were more broadly invested in larger things and also smaller local things. Yeah, I love that idea of being able to invest, you know, across a region and then also like all the way up and down a vertical. I mean, I my fantasy is that you can literally everything is partially ownable, you know, and just take that idea to the furthest furthest edges of of you know of services products companies people objects you know like the the technology could get to the point where you're just like oh this cup of coffee is separately collectively owned and valued so when you buy it you know the 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 chain of when i spent that money goes all the way back to the original supplier somehow and, and everything's all built in that way as well as the the mug, you know, that that coffee is served in all the way back to the original maker and things like that. And so being able to trace payments over over time and space is super exciting, as well as be able to distribute that among as wide a group of people as are interested in that space. And the reason why you want everything to be ownable, because you, you think it will be a better world, because why? How is that better? Well, I think I think once you own a piece of something and you're invested in it, I mean, when I when I talk about being a publicly traded person, I often will tell people like, you know, people are invested in your future already. You know, like your your mom wants the best for you and has invested a lot of time, money and energy into you. I think once once you have that piece of ownership, you know, if you've ever invested in a friend's venture, whether it's a startup or even just a bar or a candle company, you become such an advocate for that thing and you become really attached to it in that way. And the idea of having that level of attachment to the things around you and services around you and the in, and your environment is, I think, really powerful and potentially makes the world, you know, quote unquote, a better place. I think that's a good a place to close as any. Marcus, Mike, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, yeah, any, fun. any last minute plugs or where, where can people find you online if they want to learn more? I have the worst URL in the world. It's K mikeym.com if people want to come and buy shares and vote on my life they're welcome to it's not public uh, solicitation people... <laughs> just go for it <laughs> people right. can, uh, can visit chroma chroma.fund awesome thank you guys if you're an early stage entrepreneur we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.